Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Audubon, Louisiana. Today, we're continuing our coverage of the State of the Coast Conference and bringing you some of the amazing conversations that happened at State of the Coast. We've talked about it many times on this show, but how to fund the work that's needed to restore Louisiana's coast is one of the biggest topics out there. And our very own Simone Malaz was part of a panel of experts that included economists, uh, folks from the state and CPRA, as well as others, discussing the creative ways that we can do more with the funding we have and work to secure additional funding. So the first episode today will feature Charles Sutcliffe, who we've had on the show from the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority, again, our very own Simone Malaz, and then Stephen Barnes with LSU. So we hope you enjoy it. And then next week, we'll air part two of the funding panel from State of the Coast. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to State of the Coast 2018. I hope you all enjoyed the opening plenary sessions this morning with our various uh, local and statewide leaders. Um, And now we're diving into uh, some of the interesting aspects of coastal restoration here in the state, specifically here in this room today, financing and the financing landscape. Um, So I'll quickly introduce myself and my fellow panelists up here before turning it over to Charles Sutcliffe um, for some remarks from the state, um, as well as our other panelists to kind of briefly describe what they're doing. Then we'll have a moderated Q&A and then some questions from you audience members. So it should be a good discussion uh, with these folks who are working on coastal financing. So I'm Lacey McManus. I'm the Director of Program Development at Greater New Orleans, Inc., or GNO, Inc. We're the Economic Development Alliance for the 10 Parish Greater New Orleans region. We act as a catalyst for wealth generation here in southeast Louisiana. And while a few of our parishes are very much on the front lines of coastal erosion and coastal land loss, all of our parishes are impacted in some way. Uh, by coastal restoration, by land use as a result of that, by water management, whether urban or riverine. We're a very environmentally sensitive region. And so for those reasons, as an economic development agency, we dive into the coastal space and the environmental space. We recognize that our economy is intrinsically linked to our environment. So we're very proactive on the advocacy front, the policy front, with the support of the Walton Family Foundation. We're also very uh, active and proactive, I would say, on the economic economic development front as it relates to environmental management. So every time we see a project that has to do with restoring our environment, that represents jobs, that represents a firm's ability to win a contract, that represents economic development. So we're very aggressive in developing what we call the environmental management sector. So for these reasons, we're here in this space um, in coastal restoration in Louisiana, and this is why we engage and work very closely with the partners and panelists that you see up here today. And so without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce Uh, the folks that we have in order of which they will actually be presenting. I'm not sure if they're sitting in that order, but that's fine. (laughs) So first we have... All good. I think we're all reasonable people. We can put the pieces together. So first we have Charles Sutcliffe uh, with the state of Louisiana. Charles is the director of policy and programs for the governor's office of coastal affairs. Uh, In that position, he leads the governor's advisory commission on coastal protection, restoration, and conservation, and the CPRA board subcommittee on flood risk and resilience. Charles is involved in projects to identify and implement innovative financial instruments, initiatives to establish the viability and path forward on future revenue streams, and he's also helped to communicate the economic case for the Louisiana Coastal Master Plan. We also have Simone Malaz with us. Simone, as Executive Director of Restore Retreat, works daily on the local, state, and federal level to advocate for restoration, protection, policy, and funding needs of the disappearing Louisiana coast. 
specifically the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins. Simone serves on the Governor's Advisory Commission on Coastal Protection, Restoration and Conservation, and she's also the co-chair of the Commission's Diversion Subcommittee. We have with us as well Stephen Barnes, who's the Director of Economics and Policy Research Group at LSU's E.J. Orso College of Business. Uh, Stephen is a true economist, holding degrees, uh, both PhDs and master's degrees in economics from UT Austin, as well as an undergraduate degree in economics from LSU. He's also the author of The Economic Evaluation of Coastal Land Loss in Louisiana, and is a great resource for understanding the economic impacts of coastal land loss here in the state. Shannon Kuniff is with the Environmental Defense Foundation and works uh, for the last 27 years for the federal government at the intersection of water resources, engineering, and environmental policies. She leads EDF's Coastal Resilience Program, serving as the Director of Coastal Resilience, uh, and she develops strategies for expanding use of natural infrastructure and is exploring means to finance restoration and natural infrastructure. So with that, I will hand it over to Charles to kick off the panel presentations. Again, following those presentations, we'll have a moderated Q&A and then open it up for audience uh, questions and answers as well. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Lacey. Um, yeah, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, good morning. Um, so let me just jump right in. I guess the governor kind of really set, set things up a lot. We're kind of talking about this Louisiana moment. And so part of that is because of the maturation of all the experience that we've gathered and all the science and, and, and those things. And the other, the other thing that's really making this Louisiana's moment is these, are these new funding streams that are really coming in and uh, are, are really going to be much, much, more, uh, much larger than, than what we've seen before. And so there are a couple things. My, my whole presentation basically is just to kind of provide a framework for you guys to kind of understand the specific projects that all the other people up here are working on. So just kind of what, what is the state thinking about? What are the, the, big, the big picture ideas um, going on? And then how do these projects plug, plug into that? So, you know, making the most of this, this opportunity is really important for us. And what it does, these, these new funding streams just really basically amplify the already complex work of funding the state's coastal program. And so, so these, are, these kind of five things are just kind of things that are kind of on our minds as, as, as we're going forward, right? So the first one, um, you've really got to kind of understand what, what the allowable uses are for the funding uh, streams that we have available and how do you match those to the highest uh, priority projects. That's kind of what we always do and so we're just trying to do that same uh, task in, in this new uh, with these new funding streams. The second thing is that's also happening kind of that's, that's financially related is that CPRA is also kind of shifting from um, mul doing multiple smaller projects to fewer higher cost, higher impact projects kind of as the master plan always envisioned. The funding streams are allowing us to kind of make that shift so that's happening right now. Um, the third thing is you know the state has uh, a lot of convening power and we have the we have tools at our disposal and we have uh, the legislative branch that we can work with to create new tools as we kind of approach these funding um, questions. So that's that's another aspect that's happening that I'm going to touch on. And then fourth um, and fifth, kind of there are new things that we need to do that we haven't really done before. Um, and a lot of the, the new things is what we have up here. Um, it's things like we haven't done yet, like like how we haven't we've never uh, bonded out a project and we haven't really um, undertaken some of the steps to kind of figure out all the ins and outs of how to do that, what the advantages are and what the disadvantages are. And so we're kind of starting down that road with some of the projects up here today. And then finally, we don't have all the money we will ever need for the coast. And so there's always that idea to what, what are the new opportunities? Are there efficiencies we can get through new project delivery mechanisms? Are there um, just what are, what are our options? What are our avenues that we should be looking into for down the road? 
Um, so just quickly, I just wanted to give everybody just a, a just a broad overview of the the way the coastal program has been funded. You know, in the in the post Katrina era, well, the, I guess first of all, there have always been a lot of different funding streams at play at once, right? And they all have different uh, rules about how they, they come online, how you access them, what you can use them for. And so the post-Katrina, these are just some of the major ones. Um, you know, there's Quipper has been around, state mineral revenue is our recurring stream. Uh, there were things that are no longer there. There are one-time monies that kind of come in and, and go away. Um, and now in the, in the post-Deepwater Horizon era, um, we've still got some of those uh, funding streams that we've always had, like Quipra and, and the state mineral revenues. Um, in Go Mesa, but Go Mesa is now in phase two, and of course the ones in black, the ones that go to 2032 are oil spill ones. And then so all, alongside of that, all these different funding streams um, that are available to us, we've all, um, the main one that, our, that provides our cash flow, kind of what the program was built around, is this um, state uh, mineral revenues that we get. And that's what CPRA uses to provide the cost share on Quipper projects. It uh, allows the cash flow for our grant expenditures, so the funding streams that are required to be done through grants, and it also um, funds our program. So all the adaptive management that we do, the development of the master plan, um, operating expenses, those kinds of things are all handled through that. So, so while the funding streams have been coming online and offline, we've also had our kind of our main um, salary, if you will, it's been kind of having this uh, you know, dr dramatic you know, decrease in what's been available, and that's just due to commodity prices and not to any, anything other than that. Um, so just, this is just a summary of some of the major funding streams um, that, that we used to show. Um, there, that's, these aren't the actual numbers. These are just kind of, there's assumptions built into all of these, and that's kind of why we have a whole panel up here to talk about this. But I wanted to give everybody a ballpark on, on what amount of money we're talking about um, over the next just 15 years, because that's the, that's the payment window for the Deepwater Horizon uh, settlement funds. And so that's, that's the window that we're just kind of looking at right now. So Quipra has traditionally been a 60 to 80 million dollar a year program so I just use that um, to kind of set our boundaries for Quipra. State mineral revenue has been like in the 15 million dollar range the last couple years um, so that kind of I use that for our low our low benchmark but it could be as high as 30 million dollars we've had good years like that so that's kind of where I got the high number from. Um, Go Mesa phase two we just got our first check and so the low there kind of assumes that, that that's the level that we get funded through the rest of these next 15 years um, but if you apply I just applied the percentage of the amount of money we received to the cap and said okay so we could be looking at as much as as this almost two billion there. Um, and then the NERDA, NIFWIF, and the Restore uh, pots are the mostly predetermined through the oil spill settlements, and those are kind of fixed fixed amounts, except for pot two, which is kind of the last one that's still kind of up for, up for debate and is uh, up for competition. Um, so basically what, what CPRA has always done, and we have the very people that do it in here, is that we, you've got to match your revenue streams to the projects you're trying to get out the door. And it's, so it's, it's money in determines projects out. Um, but on the, there's all these complicating factors that that make this you know a full-time job, and so the the funding streams themselves have restricted uses. They have different payout schedules. They have different approval processes and drawdown processes and their own timelines that they all work on. And then projects have their own set of complications where you want to build them in a certain order, or you have permitting timelines you have to worry about, or you know uncertainty there. You have engineering design that takes more or less time depending on the project, and then you have when you finally get to construction, um, those are the, the you know the, usually the largest payments on a, for a project, and so you have to kind of figure out how all those things kind of fit together. So that's kind of the main thing about understanding what's what's what are the mechanics of what's what's going on right now. Um, the second thing that's happening, as I mentioned, is that our our project count versus relative size is is kind of changing. And so this is a graph that 
CPRA folks made. And you can see the green is kind of trending down. That's our project count. While at the same time, the average project value is the blue, and that's kind of trending up. So that's what we've been seeing. Um, and so you can see we're kind of right there at the inflection point right now. Um, we're moving from so this is, this is a strategy that, that we've known we want to do. If you look in the master plan, a lot of the projects are, are really huge, and so we're finally trying to get to that stage where we're able to move forward those large projects. And so just some of those projects going on right now um, that these, these big funding streams are allowing for are, are, are these five here. So we've got Calcasieu, uh, Ship Channel, Salinity Control Structure on the upper left-hand corner, Morpaw, Freshwater Diversion in the middle there, uh, the HNC Lot Complex, uh, and Terrebonne on the upper right-hand corner, and then the two big diversions at the bottom. And that represents about two and a half to three billion dollars worth of work and a huge impact for the coast. And so this is all, this is just an example of the types of large-scale projects that are moving through now um, thanks to these funding streams. And so if you were watching, uh, following along with the legislative process you, or saw our annual plan for this coming fiscal year, you can already kind of see how um, that, that ramp-up is being expressed in even our just our two and three-year outlook. So in FY19, um, coming up, you know, we've got a large construction um, expenditure as always, but we also have the largest E&D expenditure we've had. And that's going to lead to these, these out years where the construction is even higher and higher and, and, and the, where just really, things are just really ramping up. And so quickly, too, I just want to touch on some of the tools and frameworks that we have available to us kind of from the finance point of view from, from the state. Um, we've got the Coastal Protection and Restoration Financing Corporation, which has been around for a long time, since 07. It was originally imagined to kind of um, bond out the Gomesa revenue stream. But there have been so many uncertainties about how it would work, how much it would be, and, and things like that. It hasn't really, um, you know, taken up that task yet. And so recently, we've also... Um, in, in 2017, they also got the author legislative authority to also look into the bonding of the natural resources damages funds or in some of the restore funding streams, um, if, if that's the way we wanted to go. So this is a body, it's a um, it's of the state, but not of the state. Um, let me see, it's a special purpose public corporate entity that is independent of the state. So they're established for this main reason um, itself. And they're a group that, so if, if bonding issues come up, that, that's a group that, that we can turn to. We also have, the CPRA board has a finance working group, and I see some of the members here today. So that's just a group that we can, we can bring together to kind of um, update on these different projects that we're doing, some of our different thinking, and kind of get feedback. Um, it's a group that's made up of partly of board members, but also of, of others uh, who are um, outside of the board, like uh, Chet here, Port Fouchon, GNO Inc.'s on that board, and other, other people that just can help, help advise us along the way. And it's also a place where we can kind of work into the details as some of these um, recommendations come out of these other projects. And then finally, um, the legislative process, we, we, we are able to kind of ask for things and, and try to work with the legislature to get new tools at our disposal to either um, have new project delivery methods, which is basically what the outcome-based performance contracting is from 2017. And if you want to know more about that, there's going to be a whole panel on that, I think, right after lunch. And, uh, and as well as a nerd banking concept that we, 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 um, we um, got passed through in 2016. So those are just some of the different mechanisms that we have. And so the last question, you know, that, that we are aware of is that there is going to be a post-Deepwater Horizon era. And so those um, Expiration dates on those funding streams are real, and so in 2032, we're going to have to figure out, you know, what comes next. What what do we do in the future to kind of keep this momentum going? Um, are there going to be, you know, in, you know, 
more del new delivery methods that we haven't started using yet that are going to really be paying off by then or the things that we aren't looking at now that will be we big and then we also just have to you know constantly look for new revenue streams you know we're going to continue to work with our partners um, in philanthropy and and you know state and nationally we're going to keep using our working groups and have us we're planning on having a summit um, it's been put off a few times but i think it's going to happen in the fall to really bring a bunch of group people together to kind of think through what what are the best options what are the things that have been talked about for a long time what things have legs what, what should we work on and then and then also kind of what's the um what's the smartest way to go about it you know we do have uh solid funding streams you know at least coming in at least on paper over the next 10 15 years um, how do you start to work on new revenue streams in, in the face of that? And so that's kind of just a broad overview of what the state is up to. Um, so now we'll have some men with Restore Retreat <laughs> talk about our great work in this space. All right. So uh, good morning. My name is Simone Malaz. I am the executive director of Restore or Retreat. Um, just a little bit about us. We are a 501c3 nonprofit uh, based in Thibodeau, Louisiana. Uh, we were actually started in 2000 uh, from a group of business and industry, port officials, landowners. Uh, and so we still operate with the same mission and the, as the day we started in 2000, which is to implement uh, large-scale, aggressive uh, restoration projects in our area. And so that leads us to um, how we got interested in financing the master plan. Um, so uh, I actually began at Restore Retreat in 2005. And so um, the, all the rules obviously changed in 2005 uh, with the creation of the CPRA and with the new master plan. And so um, we were, were able to be a part of that in 2007 and obviously 2007 with the first master plan was largely conceptual and then uh, of course 2012 became more refined. Uh, we really got uh, engaged in 2017 with the master plan. Uh, we had a position on the framework development team and then we were also afforded an opportunity at Restore Retreat to help with engagement and outreach. And so um, I'm on another panel tomorrow to talk about that, but just uh, the long and short of it is, is that we went into the communities and are still going out into communities today to talk about the master plan. But one of the questions that kept coming up with the master plan as we did this engagement, and even as we sat on the technical side of the development of the 2017 plan was, how can we pay for this plan? You know, there's a lot of different figures that are thrown out there, and the fact of the matter is, is that we're constrained by resources, whether it be natural resources, time, or money. I'm sure we could have a $150 billion master plan if we had the time and the money to do so. But the fact of the matter is, is that we do not. And so Charles actually did a really excellent job of laying the groundwork when we, when we started to know that the master plan was coming to, 2017 master plan was coming to fruition, we wanted to talk about, okay, how can we implement this plan? And to be able to implement the plan, you have to have money. So the things that we already knew that Charles covered in, in a good way was that, um, that we have this funding stream. Um, over the next 15 years, and it's not insignificant, no matter um, what some other groups might tell you. I'll take $10 billion any day uh, as a start on our, on our path towards implementation. But there are restrictions to those funds. The fact that they come over 15 years, there's state law, there's federal law, 
Some of it is policy. There's a Department of Justice plea agreement just to shake things up a little bit about how and when that money comes and what those eligible uses are. Another uh, restriction is certainly that most of this, or some of it at least, is grant reimbursable, which means that the state of Louisiana has to put the cash up first and then get paid back on the back end. Uh, and you can imagine that's pretty difficult um, when some of the state contributions uh, are as low as $15 million. And so we really wanted to start thinking about it in a, in a significant way. How can we implement projects for this aggressive master plan that we're, we're very proud of, but how can we implement these projects and not just pay as you go? What are some things that we can think about? And so we actually started this process well over a year ago. We had this idea that we, we need to bring some expertise in, some folks that knew the market, they knew what folks were talking about, what they might be interested in. I knew my friends like Shannon were working on things like environmental impact bonds. Uh, people talk about P3s all the time, um, but they don't always think that you have to pay P3s back or have that funding source. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that we brought that information to folks too as well. And so with the help of uh, philanthropy, we actually uh, approached CPRA and asked them to partner with us so that we can engage uh, folks from um, a different area of expertise in the, in the financial market so that we could do this. So um, much to my surprise, both agreed, both philanthropy and CPRA agreed to that. So then we had to think about how we were going to execute a process to engage um, some financial experts on this. And so um, we actually uh, took a, a process where we did a statement of interest and qualifications. And I'd like to say that that's because we knew it was going to be a good process, but mostly it was because we weren't even sure if people would be interested in this work. And so we put out that RSIQ on the streets. Um, and thank to Lacey and some of our partners at GNO Inc. We were able to host an informational meeting at GNO Inc. We had over 40 people attend. We had folks call in from all across the country, LA, New York, Washington, DC. So we thought we were on to something then. So then when we actually accepted proposals, um, there were uh, actually 10 statements and in interest of qualifications that were submitted to us that represented an amazing, amazing selection of folks, some of the brightest minds from across the country, and most importantly, folks that we hadn't already been engaging with to begin with. So some folks that were now interested in Louisiana um, because they wanted to help us figure out um, our money. So um, from the statement of interest and qualifications, we went into a proposal process and we had uh, four teams submit full proposals for excellent teams that represented local interest, um, some broad regional interest, and then some national interest as well. And so we actually had a team of folks from both Restore Retreat, CPRA, and some outside folks uh, review um, that process. Um, and we finally selected Ernst & Young Infrastructure Advisors um, and their team to complete this work. And so um, we are actually uh, more than halfway through this process with them. Uh, we've had a great kickoff with CPRA. CPRA dedicated uh, more than a whole day to us, to the EY team, to talk about their process. And, and thanks to Janice and Denise, um, we really asked them a lot of detailed questions about how their money come in, comes in, how it goes out, when they get paid, who they get paid for. Um, and so all of that is an effort to 
to come up with an end product that evaluates all of the different funding streams that is coming to Louisiana, look at all those different restrictions, look at all those caveats about what they can pay for when the money comes in, to look at that in a, in a real way and think, you know, for the first time, I think we'll have it all in one place, which is the first great step. Then the second step is to look at different ways that we can pay to implement major projects of the master plan in a pay-as-you-go way or in something different. So both traditional ways and, Charles hates this word, but innovative ways of financing some of those projects instead of just pay-as-you-go. And so they're looking at all the different funding streams that are available um, that are out there in the market today that are um, maybe folks are trying it in other places like the Carolinas or, or there's a, a core P3 in Minnesota, that they're looking at all these different ways that you can pay for a project and matching up those funding streams with the project that might best fit that. And then ultimately they want to come up with a roadmap for CPRA and for us to use to go into this pay-as-you-go. And we're going to talk about this, I think, a little bit probably through the moderated discussion, but we really want to make sure that we're making the most of the money that we have to maximize it and leverage it. But that also begins the conversation of the cost of money. And so if we bond this money out and we get this money forward, that comes at a cost to us, right? And what is, is that worth it? You know, we, we lose time, we lose um, efficiencies, we lose um, maybe a storm comes and so you have some damage. And so that this is just the first step, I guess is what I'm trying to say, to a, a longer, more broad conversation we need to have about short-term financing and also long-term financing. So those are some next ste steps to come from us. Um, when we went through the process of engaging Ernst & Young, um, one of the things that we realized, and it was a very now topic and is still very relevant today, is that the GOMESA forecast was so uncertain, and that doesn't just affect the state, it also affects the parishes that gets their money. And we did not even have um, what we thought was a good, credible range of folks to expect of what they would be getting from their GOMESA money. And so, um, actually with the support of CPRA and, and philanthropy once again, we actually started a, another project, um, and I won't steal his thunder, but we engaged uh, Stephen Barnes at LSU to help us better forecast GOMESA revenues because it was such a critical piece to our bigger finance report, um, especially because that was much needed cash that was available, especially for the, some of those grant reimbursable items. And so I'll let Stephen talk about his work um, about the GOMESA forecasting. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here and get a chance to share uh, some of the work that we've been doing um, I think Simone gave us a good introduction. This, this is sort of an offshoot of some of the work that Restore Retreat and CPRA have been doing together to try to bring into focus the overall financing picture. Um, but we're really working on a much deeper dive into GoMesa uh, and, and trying to, to make sure that we've got a really solid understanding of the mechanisms that are going to drive future GoMesa revenues um, and, and then putting together on top of that uh, the best forecast we can of how all those pieces line up and, and what we can expect to see down the road. Um, so I'm going to start, and, and today, you know, we're, I'm going to focus on some of the background work that we've done in, in terms of unpacking those mechanisms. Um, this is ongoing research, and, and I think the forecast itself, we're, we're getting there, uh, but, but that's something that is probably to be released later this summer. Um, 
but uh, want to just kind of review kind of some of the key mechanisms. I think this is for, for many of you in the room. Uh, you know, you're here because of your interest in, in how we're financing uh, the state's coastal master plan. You've been hearing about GoMesa for a long time, um, and and probably have a good bit of familiarity here. But I think for for a lot of people, uh, early expectations about GoMesa were so high um, that. Uh, we almost sort of took for granted that we're going to be bringing in, there, there will be so much revenue available that we'll be hitting those revenue sharing caps. And therefore, um, you know, we can, we, we have a good bit of certainty on what to expect there. Obviously, as the price of oil dropped over the last several years, uh, we, we sort of may have paused and kind of rethought those expectations a bit. Um, and, and we now know what year one of phase two looks like, but, but that doesn't necessarily set the stage for what we should expect future years to look like. Um, so just as, as very quick background, um, Gomesa was passed in, in 2006 and shares offshore oil and gas uh, revenues and royalties with uh, Gulf producing states, 37.5% um, to be specific of those outer continental shelf revenues, 30% goes directly to states, 7.5% goes to coastal political subdivisions. And so those dollars are gonna be allocated across states uh, with 30% of it going to the states and 75 going directly to parishes and counties um, along the coast. Phase one revenue began uh, almost immediately in the following fiscal year, um, but was limited to a much narrower geographic area. Um, so, and, and then phase two began with this past fiscal year and dramatically expanded what revenues were available to be shared to cover virtually the entire western and central planning areas and I'll show you a graph that may, or map that may look familiar. Um, so on the right-hand side, we've got some orange blocks uh, and, and, and which show the much narrower area uh, that was the focus of phase one. Um, and then uh, actually in that sort of green and, and blue. Um, and then really everything now to the west in, in encompassing the central planning area, western planning area, is now covered under phase two. Um, so dramatic change, and that also brings with it um, kind of a need to reassess what those revenues might look like. So again, just, just kind of big picture, how are those dollars split up? So just, you know, not worth uh, losing sight of the fact that federal government, U.S. Treasury is still keeping about half, and about 12 and 12.5% of uh, those dollars go to the Land and Water Conservation Fund, and then we've got the 30% to the Gulf producing states and 7.5% to the coastal uh, political subdivisions. So we've now got one year worth of phase two revenues that have actually been distributed, and this is what the distribution looks like across the Gulf states. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about the mechanisms that determine that distribution, um, but this is a good starting point for us. So Louisiana got 44% of total revenues, which is a, a little higher than I think expectations um, had put us uh, uh, you know, up to this point. Um, so that's good news. Um, and we're going to uh, take a few minutes to kind of walk through these mechanisms. So again, a lot of this terminology, probably things some of you are familiar with, but I wanna slow down uh, and, and kind of make sure that, that we've all got a good understanding of what really drives each of these things and how much might we expect each of these components to change over time. So that overarching uh, umbrella term, qualified OCS revenues, Outer Continental Shelf rev revenues, is made up of three major components, uh, bonus bids, rents, and royalties. The bonus bids are paid up front 
uh, when, when, uh, when leases are acquired. Um, and those are driven by the highest dollar amount for a bid at the time of the lease sale. There was a time when uh, there was much more competition for, uh, for acquiring these leases in the Gulf and you'd have multiple bids and those, those bids could go up very high to make sure that companies could secure the most um, attractive uh, areas. Mo more recently, most, most areas that have been bid on have gotten one bid, so very little competition, so those bonus bids have come way down. Um, but there is a minimum bid amount per acre um, set in every lease sale. So uh, that ensures that when activity is going on out there in the Gulf or, or when, when companies are, are bidding on uh, these areas, that there's a minimum amount of revenue that will come in uh, to, uh, you know, to be shared. Second component is rents. Um, rents are paid after, you know, sort of after you've secured that uh, track before you've started producing anything. Um, so, uh, and, and rents can go on for uh, several years um, while companies ex further explore or begin to develop those sites. The, the amount of the rent is based on the size of the block um, and the water depth. You know, so these things vary a little bit, uh, but they are also kind of predetermined in any given lease sale and sort of set up up front like a contract. So in the overall process, bonus bids paid up front, moving into rents, and then finally the royalties, which is the category that I think um, people often think about most or associate most with this idea of offshore uh, revenue sharing. Um, and so the royalties are paid once you start producing and essentially represent a portion of the value of that uh, oil or gas being produced. And so it's going to be based on the amount produced, the price for the, pro uh, the price, whether we're talking about oil or gas, and the respective royalty rates for each of those things. Those royalty rates also, again, depend on the lease sale and whether we're talking about uh, uh, oil or natural gas. So a little historical context. Here's a picture of what bonus bids have looked like. Uh, going way, way back uh, to, to the early days of the 1950s here. Um, more recently, uh, we, we see really that, that first bit, that most recent big, big spike. We're not going to see the mouse up there, but. Yeah, so I think everybody knows which giant spike I'm talking about. It's the most recent <laughs> spike, which, which stands out very clearly here. No, nothing's working. But. And that was really, that was right after GoMesa had been uh, passed. Um, and, and there were some special uh, provisions in that first lease sale, which made it more attractive. Uh, but that also came at a time when, uh, when oil prices were really sky high before the recession hit. Um, and so in, in many ways, that was a very different era and, and, and a bidding opportunity or bidding uh, time that um, was unique and not necessarily one we would expect to, to see repeated. More recently, things have been in a much tighter range with obviously that most recent trend of downward trend at the end of that, not great news in terms of revenue sharing, uh, but, but also probably more indicative of what we might expect in the near term. So much lower bid, uh, bid totals there. Taking a look at this second component, rents, you know, and, and how much rents have changed over time. So what we're looking at here is GoMesa phase two rent payments, and we've got phase two in quotes here. Uh, obviously phase two just started in this most recent year, but if we look at the activities out there in the Gulf and imagine what those rents would have looked like if the phase two type of sharing had been in place, um, we would see uh, a, a, a picture which shows us pretty consistently uh, above $100 million a year. Um, 
those rents kind of gradually grew over time as, as we think about the accumulation of Gomesa qualified uh, leases um, over time. But in more recent years, those have tapered off. And that's again, due to sort of the macroeconomic conditions, overall decline in the oil and gas industry. Uh, and that's a combination of, of uh, activity that had started several years ago, sort of fade, you know, waning, fading off, or converting to production, and much less interest in more recent years. So again, the, that downturn trend at the end here, uh, not great news, but, but probably more indicative of what to expect in the near term. And then finally, the oil royalties uh, from phase two, again in quotes here, what would royalties have looked like if that phase two revenue sharing had been in place uh, going back uh, a number of years? And we see some ups and downs, some fluctuations here. And important to keep in mind that royalties are, are going to be a product of the amount produced and the price you're getting. We all know prices have gone down dramatically in recent years. And so, you know, if we think about uh, Setting aside the effects of price, we see a much steadier picture of increasing production. Okay, so even though when we look back at bonus bids, we've seen kind of a decline in interest, so to speak, uh, rents, sort of declining trend in recent years, but royalties, things are actually still on an upward trajectory despite the sort of overall slowdown or, or downturn. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about, about why, that, why is that happening and, and what can we expect there.